Hey everyone, I'm Sarah James, a beauty blogger and self-help aficionado. And I'm Kristen Howerton, a writer and psychotherapist. And you are listening to Selfie, a weekly podcast about two women trying to tackle better self-care. We are both of the opinion that self-care is important, and yet we find it elusive. And while we may have all the info we need, we don't always get there. From the silly to the serious, we are taking a vulnerable yet humorous look at body, mind, and spirit. And maybe a touch of the random, all while looking at the distractions and defenses that keep us from caring for ourselves like we should. Okay, hey guys. Well, today we are going to be talking about the opiate crisis in the United States. If you're watching the news at all, you know that this has become a major issue. Um, People becoming addicted to pain pills after surgeries. Um, It's affecting both young people and old people. There's a big rise in um, 20 to 25 years of age, but also amongst baby boomers. So we're going to be talking with Denise Carice. She is a clinical psychologist. Um, She has lots of good information for us about what to do if we have people we know and also how to make sure we are avoiding ever getting addicted to pain pills after a surgery or dental procedure something like that but first I'm going to do a quick check-in with Claire hey Claire hi guys well we have not talked in a while I know I've kind of been under the weather with my recovery with my yes I have (laughs) barely above my house as I'm recovering from this um, septoplasty and turbinate reduction surgery that I had. I've seen your kids. You've seen my children. Well, you've driven them. <laughs> thank you, Claire. I would like to publicly thank Claire for getting my children to school for the last month. Oh, no, it, it works both ways, definitely. Yeah. Well, a little bit more in <laughs> my direction We this just have month. to get you better. Yes, yes. So I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Yeah. Uh, my self-care is going, I would say, moderately well. Still working out. Um ish. Yeah. I'm not working as much as I was, but I'm like in a routine of where I'm feeling it, it is a routine, yeah. which is really what I was like, aiming for. Instead of totally. doing three to four days like I was in the beginning, like we're also gung-ho in the beginning, right? Of course. Like I am so going to make these expensive oh, yeah. leggings work totally. <laughs> for me. Um, so I'm going like one to twice a week, um, but it's going really well and it's kind of nice having my own time in the morning. I drop the kids off, then I go for about an hour before work. Nice. So that's been really, really nice. Do you find that when on the days that you go, do you have more energy for the rest of the day or less? I have more energy to a point. Yeah. So I'm like feeling really great. Yep. But at eight o'clock, please stop speaking to me, everyone in my house. At 8 p.m. Like I'm done. That's fair. That's that's kind of a good plan. We used to do like when the kids would go down at eight, my husband and I would like, you know, watch a show or hang out. I don't want to. Nah, yeah. I just kind of want to be left alone to read or... Ooh. Like, I'm I'm really just, like, I'm done speaking to anyone. That's good. I think because I'm, t- I'm more tired physically. I will say, though, my clarity and, like, my fog... Sometimes I have, like, those really foggy days because I've been trying to stop drinking caffeine. Mm-hmm. Just because it messes with me all kinds of ways. Well, you know, I've been off caffeine for, like, two years. You, well, yeah. Completely. You, that, you're a big tea drinker, too. Big tea, but it's decaf. But still, like, I yeah. think it's, like, the ritual oh, of having sure. a drink. Well, yeah, but you can do decaf coffee or... I, it's, um, like, I'm getting, like, reflux. It's, like, an oh. acidic thing. It's making me feel awful. Interesting. So that's also makes me feel really You know young. what, though? You should ask this in the Facebook group because our selfie podcast Facebook group is where I go for the answer to everything like I don't even go to the doctor now I just ask in the selfie my dog ate chocolate and like a normal person would call a vet I'm like I know ask the selfie group it is for real the smartest group of women and men ever yeah um if you're not there you should join us yes like we actually I don't know if you saw this but we actually had a vaccination conversation in that group that did not go drama 
I don't know what you're talking and about. And I've never been so proud. I've never, I was like, did that just happen? 80 Wait, comments really about vaccinations with no drama. Wow. No arguing. Did someone block me from that conversation? No. <laughs> no. I, I was like, where's Claire on right? this? Oh, that's a whole other show. It's such a respectful group. Anyway, you, I feel like you should go in the group and ask, because I feel like this, I feel like I've heard this, or you could Google it. I want to say that if you drink coffee, if you cold brew it with cold water overnight, it's less acidic. Really? I could be making this up. I will ask the group. Ask the group. Because I do really miss the taste of it. I love coffee. And we have, we're so lucky here in Costa Mesa. We have a lot of really great coffee places. We do. And part of my ritual was going to Thunder King on the Uh way to work. I love doing like that mint coffee situation. Oh, yeah. I'm mourning the loss of my coffee. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, I get that. I, I will say that there's a lot of times not drinking caffeine where I do end up feeling deprived because, you know, you'll go somewhere and they're not serving decaf mm-hmm. or the decaf is like plain and all it's the... Like wa- it's like coffee water. Totally. Yeah. Like even at Starbucks, you know, they have all these new like cold brew drinks mm-hmm. like and they're not decaf. By the way, the pumpkin cold brew? I have heard. Oh my God. I've so heard. Good. But see, I can't drink that one. You have I a sip. Never tried it. Yeah. There's like that foam on top. I know. It's I've heard. heard. I've heard. It's, it's amazing. Real. It's a lot of... Ca- it's like... It was like 14... Um, grams of fat that I looked at on the app uh-huh. and I was like how was there that much fat in the cold brew oh but it's like gosh. that foamy stuff they put That's on top so funny well my self-care post-surgery is going well because it's all I can really do I'm like <laughs> having to take a nap every day it's I, I am so low productivity it's very hard but for me. your skin looks incredible okay Claire said this as she walked into my house and you guys it's true my skin has never looked better and here's the revelation <laughs> So I have to sleep on my back with my head elevated because of the surgery. So I'm sleeping on a wedge pillow and I'm usually a stomach sleeper, basically sleeping on my face. Like crinkling on my face. Oh, totally. And my skin has never been better. It's like as a result of sleeping on my back. Yeah. It looks like I thought you had fillers. I mean, I don't I haven't had a blemish in a month. It's so weird. Yeah, it really goes to show like how disgusting it is to sleep on your face. <laughs> I know, but yeah. it, but it's so hard for me not to. But you're not getting the quality of sleep you were getting before. Oh, anyway. I'm barely sleeping. I can't believe that my skin looks good because I feel like I noticed a at rat. first you went, you had some photos when you were I think it was at Mom 2.0. Uh-huh. And I was like, "Wow, her skin looks really good." And then when I walked in the house, I was like, you're trying like, to oh, not stare at you." You're like, "Oh, it wasn't a filter." No, those are my photos. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's me. Claire is a, you are a serial over filter. I am. Yeah. You know what? But you own it. You I don't do care. own it. You don't My care. favorite is when our friend Chad <laughs> calls me out in the photo. He's like, I don't think you have enough filters on this one. You don't even do. I'm gonna start filtering his photos. You totally should. That would be hilarious. <laughs> oh my god. So what are your two thumbs up for this week? Well, okay, one thumbs up I have is speaking of pillows. <laughs> Speaking of pillows, um, I actually did get a new pillow that I really like. It's a head leveler pillow. What so, well, it's it's a pillow where you can order it. It's custom according to how you sleep and what level of firmness that you like. Um, and so it's it's really nice. Wow. Um, so you can order it for stomach sleeping. You can order it for back sleeping. It's just like really good for your neck, really good for your back. Probably good for um, your neck. They have it like they have one called OrthoServe, which is a cervical pillow. Um, so yeah, it's it's just it's really nice. It has like support for based on your neck size, um, and it's yeah, it's just it's a really nice pillow. I have a giant head. Do would they, would yeah, they take that into account? Before really they do, do. really? Do they, no, you, you like measure yourself. You don't measure. You just kind of answer like a questionnaire, like extra large. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Totally. 
Um, and then my other thumbs up, and it's funny that I've not talked about this one before because we enjoyed them, you and I, Where? all summer, is these, oh, um, these wine spritzers that I got. So they're Archer Ruse wine spritzers, and they're in a can, like kind of like a beer can, but they're you can get them in white, rosé. The rosé, yeah, yeah, yes, I remember these. Or red, and they are. They're like, like if you've ever been to Spain, it's like the, the mm-hmm. day wine. Like where the spritzer. It's just, yeah, like yeah. a little carbonated, um, a little sweet, but not too sweet. I, okay, when I was in Germany, they were serving something like this. Yeah, like a big, like a big slice of orange, like uh-huh. a sprig of rosemary, totally. or mint or something. Yeah, I love that. Well, what I really like about them is they're single serving, and so I'll keep them in the fridge. I'll drink one, you know, while I'm cooking dinner, and it feels light. It doesn't feel as heavy as a wine. It doesn't give me any of the acid reflux that I get from wine or headache or headache. Um, but it just feels light. And then I like that if like a bunch of people come over, it's like a nice little easy drink you can pop mm-hmm. out. You know. And why aren't we drinking them right now? We should have. <laughs> I know. I, I know you can't see I us. Have some, but like, I have had them drink. in my fridge all summer. It's like they've been the eternal allowance drink. Like. We just keep drinking them. Yeah, I want one right now. <laughs> I think we had them before we biked over to the fair, actually. I we think did. We had them. Yes. You also had that really yummy kombucha over the summer. Oh, the hard kombucha? Yes, that was really good. Oh, that was so good. That was um, flying embers. Oh, my gosh. Flying embers. And you had all the kinds. Hard kombucha. I had all the kinds. There was one, like, ancient berry that was really good, and then there was a ginger and oak. And you kind of feel like you're being healthy when yes. you're... Because it's kombucha. So it's, totally. like, it's fine. I can have four. <laughs> I will tell you, though, this, the kombucha is serious stuff. It hits you kind of out it of nowhere. It does hit yeah. you out of nowhere. The, you, the wine spritzers are a little more, like, reasonable, but that hard kombucha is like, hi, I'm here. So I want one of those now. <laughs> that sounds really, really good. Um, Claire, it's 1.30 p.m. I know. It's fine. <laughs> First of all, my kids are old enough that they walk home from school now, so I if I want to have a spritzer at 1.30, I'm allowed to. Which is amazing. All right, what you got for two so, thumbs up? Changing gears a little bit to electrolytes. Okay. One of the things I found when I started working out was that, I mean, I already knew that I didn't drink enough water. And so I was trying to really, you know, increase my water intake, but I was getting headaches. I was getting um, dehydrated easily. Yeah. So um, a friend who also works out recommended her kids actually drink this when they have like soccer tournaments. Um, It's called Ultima Replenisher and it's a powder Mm -hmm. that you put into your water. Yeah. There's a bunch of different um, flavors. I like the lemonade one just because it tastes like lemonade. Uh Uh-huh. Sugar-free, gluten-free... All the things we care about free. Oh, nice. And it lasts a really long time uh-huh. because you only need one little tiny scoop. Oh, my gosh. And it's delicious. Oh, I want to try this. It's so good. And, they and have it's in like, this cute little container. Which I have, little to hide. Scoop. I have to hide for my kids. I would have to hide it for my kids, too. But they do have like little packets also. Sure. And so I give them a couple of those yeah. every once in a while. But it's really affordable and it's just really yummy. Oh, awesome. I'm going to order that. It kind of reminds me. So like my biggest weakness uh-huh. is... <laughs> Chick-fil-A diet lemonade. Oh. It's very similar. What? And so if you slice a piece of lemon in there. Okay. Put it in the hydro flask. Oh, Chick-fil-A's <laughs> diet lemonade is so good. Which, by the way, it's not calorie free. Oh, I know. Did I never tell you this? <laughs> Remember when I was trying to do keto? Yes. And I was having the worst time of it. I wasn't losing any weight. Well, <laughs> because... I thought that it was calorie-free because most diet drinks are calorie-free. So and then come to find out, it's it's not calorie-free. And it's it just did less have, calorie. I think, like six carbs, which is way too much if you're doing keto. Absolutely. Yeah. Still so. better than the regular. Oh, way better. But, but I was on, it was a sad day for me, too. Yes. It's very but sad. But anyway, the Ultima, love it. Okay, I Kids get love that. it. They have it, like, in black raspberry Ooh. and orange. But the lemonade's great because I just love lemonade. Yeah. And then my second thing 
not as exciting, but I'm very excited because I have like a 14 inch, um, you know, little MacBook. Yeah. And I've been looking for a laptop case, but I hate the ones that look like a briefcase with the handles. Yeah. I've been looking for a good sleeve. Yes. And I'm really particular. I ordered a whole bunch. And of course, I find one for $14 on Amazon. Of course you do. Oh my gosh, this one is really cute. It is my absolute favorite. It looks like handmade leather. I know. Is it really leather? Is it, it is pick- really leather. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it says it's really leather. Is it really leather? I don't know. If it's not, I'm just going to say it's vegan. <laughs> it says high quality microfiber leather texture. Leather texture. I don't know. So, so I think it's not. So it's vegan. But it looks like it. It's vegan leather. So it's yes. fine. And it comes in black and like a pinkish Ooh, color. it's super cute. And a bunch of different sizes, but it looks super expensive. It does look very expensive. That and would be a great gift, actually. Right? A yeah. great teacher gift, too. And they have it in multiple sizes, so you just have to know mm-hmm. the laptop size. Exactly. Which it links all to those. But yeah. in the photo on Amazon, which I love, is you can fit your phone and yeah. your little MacBook in there. It's super cute. Ooh, and I, like I mean, that. for less than 14 bucks. Yes. So yeah, great gift. And I'm way too excited about it. But I, I guys, I went through like four or five before finding the one I wanted. Mm-hmm. And the original one I wanted was like $85. Yeah. Aren't and you so glad like you a, found this? Yes. Great dupe. Great. Love it. Great vegan dupe. Super cute. Well, as always, we will link up all of these in um, our Facebook group. And also they will be in the stories of our Instagram account, which is at Selfie Podcast. I want to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, italic.com. So italic is a really great way to buy unbranded high-end purses, accessories, clothing, sweaters. It's affordable and sustainable. It's the only online clothing company where you can shop beautiful unbranded luxury goods from the same people who are making Gucci, Chanel, Cartier, but without the markup costs of the logo and branding. They have an in-house design team that travels the world to source the best manufacturers to create their own originally designed products. When you buy without the brand, you get the same quality just without the logo for about 50% off. So I got an adorable purse there a couple months ago. It is their Martine leather crossbody bag. It's a black sort of like square shaped purse, medium size, and it's actually made by the same manufacturer as Celine. So it looks that high quality. The leather's really supple. I get a ton of compliments on this purse. It's a nice black leather with a gold chain, gold zippers, tons of pockets. It's the perfect size. You can stash a lot of stuff in it, but it looks cute with anything from a cocktail dress to jeans. I love this purse, and I keep looking at their website because they're always refreshing their inventory. They've got a ton of cashmere stuff right now. They've got sweaters and scarves, a really cute velvet clutch. Now, because Italic doesn't buy its inventory, they don't have to mark up the product's costs. Instead, their manufacturers are paid a fair wage. It's great because their supply chain prevents excess inventory, so you feel good about promoting sustainability without paying that premium and without compromising on quality. I will say this, though. They sell out of products quickly. So if there's something you've got your eye on, now is the time. For the first time ever, Italic has set up a special discount code just for Selfie listeners. You can use the code SELFIE for a $15 credit on your first purchase at italic.com. Again, that's the discount code SELFIE at italic.com for 15% off luxury products that are half the price. All right. Well, I am here with Denny Carice. She is going to be talking to us today about the opioid crisis. If this is something you are not familiar with, it is certainly an issue um, that is relevant for our times because it is becoming so pervasive. Um, So she's a clinical psychologist. She's part of the recovery community for over 30 years. She currently serves as the Chief Scientific Officer of Recovery Centers of America, and she's also an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Denny, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Kristen. Glad to be here. 
Absolutely. Well, talk to me a little bit about the opioid crisis in terms of the scope. And, you know, it, it feels like this is something that has increased. Is, is that, am I accurate in that observation? Oh, you're absolutely accurate. So um, from 1999, when it really kind of started, uh, to 2016, more than 350,000 people have died from overdoses. Uh Um, So in 2017, which is the last year we have information for, there were 47,600 opioid overdose deaths. And if you really break that down, that's more than 130 every day. That's more than five every hour. It is really becoming rampant. And I, I do remember seeing that this was like becoming a more leading cause of death, um, particularly, I, I want to say, in younger men. Well, it's younger men, but it's also younger women as well. And um, it's it's some of our older folks, folks that there's really two sides of the population with opioid overdoses. One is the kind of young person that was what we call drug naive to begin with and, right. and hadn't done drugs and progressed very quickly to to uh, opioids and into heroin. Um, and then it's if there's an older group also that's done heroin off and on in their life and um, had some treatment and maybe been in and out of treatment that have um, also become addicted to this much stronger, more potent, less expensive opioid than has ever been available for us. Got it. And so let's talk for a minute and just define what opioids, what that refers to, um, you know, from prescription drugs all the way up to heroin. Right. So opioids include all the different um, prescription drugs that would have opiates in them, the hydromorphone, hydrocodone, oxycontin, oxycodone, Dilaudid, all the, the prescription drugs, but it also includes um, heroin. And then it includes what we call the other synthetic opioids, which are um, your fentanyl, your carfentanyl, that are all illicitly manufactured right now. So it's the whole scope of drugs. An opiate is something that comes directly from the poppy plant. Um, So there's not much that's an opiate anymore. Even heroin has some manufacturing in it. So um, all the rest of these, everything but morphine falls into the category of opioid. And do you, you know, do you think that most people understand when they're given an opioid, you know, for example, I just had sinus surgery was handed a bottle of Percocet on my way out, you know. Do you think that the general population understands that these, you know, that an opioid that, you know, is the same as uh, in in the same class as heroin? You know, Kristen, I don't. I think it's getting better, but I don't think they do. And I'm so sad to find out still that doctors are prescribing opioids without stopping to talk to you about them, to ask you, yeah. do you have a history of addiction? Have you ever used these before? Be very careful. These are highly addictive medications. It's just so sad that that's still happening. I I, I think that it is, too. It's very frustrating to me because, you know, I... I have found I used to work in private practice and I worked in recovery as well. And my experience was a lot of the people that came in, there was a precipitating illness where they were given a prescription and then they, you know, couldn't get off the the pain pills. And then they started seeking it in ways that are, you know, like doctor shopping, right? Absolutely. And then when that falls through, that's when they turn to street drugs. And these are people who never in a million years would have sought out heroin from the street. But that's that's the decline. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. I always say one of the few things I really like about getting older is that if you stay in the same field, you start to see these incredible trends. So um, back in the late 80s, 90s, even 
even into the 2000s, when somebody came into treatment for a heroin problem, they had probably been using drugs for 10, 15, 20 years. You know, right. it was very rare to see somebody who's like, no, I never used drugs before. I just picked, I just started about six months ago. Now I'm, I'm injecting heroin. You see that all the time today. And yeah. it's exactly what you talked about. Something like, um, let me think if I can remember the exact percentage, but 75% of people who um, abuse opioids started their addiction with a prescription drug. Um, in the 1960s, heroin was the drug that most of, often led to an opioid addiction. So people come in, they have received, and a lot of them are young kids. They received um, a prescription for opioids or they got some from their parents' medicine chest or their friend's parents' medicine chest. They took them at a party. They like the way they feel. And then you're right, absolutely, for quite a while, there was this kind of doctor shopping where um, people would be able to go get um, a month's supply of opiates, opioids from one doctor on a Monday, a month's supply from somebody else on a Wednesday, and they would see eight doctors in mm -hmm. a month, and, and they would have mm -hmm. all of this access. Well, one of the things that has worked in addressing this problem is what's called the physician drug, uh, prescription drug monitoring program, right. where physicians now are encouraged to look into a database that will tell you if that's happening. And, and so it was a while before we got that up and running and then also got interoperability between states. So I'm in Philadelphia and New Jersey is a half hour drive. Delaware is a half hour drive. Maryland's a 45 minute drive, you know. So now with the interoperability between states for that, it's much harder for folks to do that. And what happens is that people start taking them either for an injury or for fun. They become pretty quickly addicted to them. Then they start trying to buy them on the street. And when they go to buy them on the street, like 80 milligrams of Oxycontin costs about 80 bucks on the street, but it's equivalent mm -hmm. to about $20 of heroin, right. giving you the same effect. So people transition very quickly. Um, and that's, it's just a, a real, real problem. Yeah. What is it about opioids that make make it so addictive? Is it the experience? Is it, you know, why is this one that people become so ensnared in so quickly? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think that there's, I think, you know, we, we know a lot about the genetics of different drugs. We don't know everything we want to know about it. But for example, there's different genes that are responsible for the likelihood that somebody will get addicted. Um, there's other genes responsible for how difficult somebody will find it to quit, you know, and, and so I, and, and many other things. And there's different genes for different drugs. So, I think opioids are a, a drug that when it hits the brain, the person has such a sense of feeling good, such a sense of euphoria, particularly if they have the genetic loading for that, um, that they really want to feel that way again. And then the physiological addiction starts so mm -hmm. quickly mm -hmm. that it very quickly transitions over to them doing um, the opioids just so that they don't go through this incredibly painful withdrawal. Yeah, absolutely. I can remember... Um, my ex-husband was hit by a car about 15 years ago. And when he was in the hospital, they put him on a morphine drip and yep. they gave him a button to push. And I remember, you know, two days in, he was like a drug seeker. I mean, he was pushing that button. He was waking up and pushing it, you know, and then it was really difficult for him to then you know, come off of that, but, but it was done in the hospital. Um, but it, it is so powerfully physically addictive that I think it, people who wouldn't imagine themselves an addictive personality might find that this one is different. 
I think that's true. And then you also have to remember that um, with the heroin, this is the most pure heroin that we've ever seen on the streets. To, you know, today compared the heroin today compared to ten and twenty years ago is very, very different. A lot of that has to come from where we get our heroin in this country. It used to be we got about ninety percent of our heroin from Colombia, um, and then Mexico kind of came in. It's pure. It's less expensive. There's a lot of other variables that came in with that as well. And today, we get about 90% of our heroin from Mexico. Um, and the purity of it, in addition to the insertion of the, um, the synthetic opioids, such as fentanyl and carfentanyl, they've just really flooded the U.S. And the, the stronger an opioid is, the more intense the addiction is going to be, the more intense the withdrawal is going to be, and the more difficult it will be to, to get off of that uh, drug. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, you know, for people who um, are concerned about the potential of an opioid addiction, you know, what do we do when we're handed a bottle of something from our doctor and maybe we have legitimate pain? Um, what What's best practice in that situation? Yeah, right, Kristen. I mean, because none of this um, is to say that people with with significant pain don't deserve relief. They really right. do. Um, one of the problems with that, and then I'll get to your question, is that there used to be these very um, robust pain clinics that would combine an opioid with with hydrotherapy, with massage, with cognitive behavioral therapies, with biofeedback, and they had just as good results, sometimes without the opioids or very low-dose opioids. But when the opioids got, frankly, very heavily pushed by the pharmaceutical industry as being non-addictive, which was completely untrue, and as being uh, something that's appropriate for chronic pain, not just acute pain, which again is also untrue. Um, those pain clinics stopped being funded because there was a faster, easier, cheaper way. Um, so I just want to make a comment that I know mm -hmm. there's people out there with pain and I know that they deserve relief. Um, but the, for the, for the average person, if you, your doctor gives you a prescription, um, one of the problems we have is that doctors have not been educated about um, opioids and about pain or about addiction in medical school for the most part, and that's changing, um, but not much. So they, they don't have that. And then what we had also was the pharmaceutical industry coming in in the 2000s and training all the doctors in a, in a, a frankly, a very inappropriate way that, oh, you don't use these just for end-of-life pain. You can use them for chronic pain, and they're not addicting. And, and you know, Frankly, they knew they were doing this. They knew they were misrepresenting data um, and findings, and, and they taught the doctors to do it. Um, and so, you know, there's still a lot of docs out there that have had very little education on this. So if your doctor does give you that, and, and the one that makes me the most crazy is the the adolescent kid that gets their wisdom teeth out and comes home with a 30-day supply of Oxycontin for what's going to be three days at the most of pain, you know? Right. Um and so, you know, one of the things people have to just really understand that the prescription opioids are highly addictive, um, that the majority of people who develop an addiction start with a prescription drug. Mm -hmm. The other thing to remember is that there's other pain relief that is effective. And I'm not telling anybody they should they should grit their teeth in pain, but there's a lot of times when a doctor may give you a bottle of opiate, you know, a bottle of pills when aspirin, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, some physical therapy, even meditation or acupuncture could be just as effective. Yeah. Frankly, the, the opioids are really for cancer treatment, palliative and end of life care. That's where their, their use comes in. 
Um, the, the FDA has developed a checklist for people to ask their doctors before filling a prescription. And, you know, some of the questions are that you could ask your doctor are, are there non-opioid alternatives that could work? You know, will this impact me differently if my family or I have a history of addiction to alcohol or other drugs? Um, could it interact with other anxiety or sleeping medications or seizure medications? Um, you know, c- can I have a prescription for naloxone so that you have that on hand in case the person takes too many of these opioids? Because you're absolutely right. Once they start taking them, they do, um, you know, for, for some people, they take them and they hate them and they don't even take them anymore for pain. For other people, they take them and just feel like, wow, this is what I was supposed to feel like kind of all my life. You know, I feel great today. And they will keep using them. So can they also give you a prescription for naloxone? And then one of the things is, um, you know, ask them, what do you do with the unused opioid medicines? Because that's actually a very significant problem, you know. Um, And don't fill the prescription just in case, you know, only fill it if you really need it. Um, Right now, we know the most common place that teenagers get prescription opioids, the most common place they get them is from their parents or their friends' parents' medicine chests. Absolutely. And then if you look at preteens, the most common way preteens get prescription drugs is from their older siblings. Mm. So, you know, the um, according to the DEA, actually, um, up between 2006 and 2012, Pharmacies filled over 75 billion oxycodone and hydrocodone pills, 75 yeah. billion of them, yeah. you know, and, and many of them don't get used. They're left in medicine cabinets. There's actually also um, a problem with open houses with realtors and people selling their homes now that people wow. will go and look at open houses just to take a look in the medicine cabinet and see if they can find wow. some some opiates. You know, I mean, it's, it's really a very big deal. And, you know, if people can just call their local township for safe disposal, there's drop-off boxes, there's national take-back days, there's um, – we've partnered with Mothers Against Prescription Drug Abuse uh, – very similar along the lines of Mothers Against Drunk Driving um, to provide drug disposal pouches. So so some of the things are ask your doctor, you know, why is this, is, could something else work? What do I yeah. do with it? Um, you know, understand that they're very addictive. Fill it only if you need it. Keep it out of your medicine chest. Keep it locked up and then get rid of it um, in an appropriate way in a drop-off box. Yeah. I mean, you know, case in point, I'm I consider myself a pretty involved mom, but I had surgery two weeks ago and I've got a full bottle in my medicine chest. Like, yep. you know, I'm a perfect example of like having that risk right here in my house. And so you're yeah. reminding me and motivating me to find a drop box for that. Yep. And you know what? You don't have to have bad kids or, or misbehaving right. kids for them to go into your medicine chest. Oh, I what, agree. What we all have is curious kids. Oh, you know, that's I mean, right. how curious were we when we were 13 and 15 uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and whatnot? And, and kids with friends who say, hey, check out this. I mean, it's, it sounds crazy, but there has been a problem for a while with these pill parties that kids have that yeah. they go into the medicine chest, take a handful of a bunch of different things. They throw them all in a big bowl when they get to the party and they each take a handful. Yeah, I mean, that sounds crazy, I think, to most of us as adults, but I actually can imagine that as an adolescent, that might not have seemed so crazy. It might sound more like fun to me, you know? Well, yeah, and, and they're invincible. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's classic <laughs> adolescence. Speaking of, right. how, do we, how do we impart, you know, this information about pills and like how serious they can be? Because I feel like there's a perception, especially with teens, of like, well, if it's a pill, it's not that big of a deal. Like, I'm not shooting anything in, into my arm. I'm not snorting anything. It's just a pill. How do we right. help 
demystify that for them? That's a good question. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's not only is it just a pill, it's a pill your doctor gave you or your doctor yeah. gave somebody, you know, it must be okay. And the reality is that, you know, there's a lot of medications that are just really damaging to the body if you don't have a disorder that they're that they're written for or that are addictive. You know, um, the opioids are a very addictive drug. Your muscle relaxers, your uh, Valium and Xanax, again, pretty dangerous drugs in the hands of an, of an adolescent or in yeah. the hands of somebody who doesn't kind of keep their eye out to that. And I think that you talk to them about how, um, you know, there is this significant problem that I'm sure they're seeing on TV and in the paper all the time and that it almost always starts with a prescription opioid. Um, and that's just a pill. And, and, and really, you got to look at that pill as, as heroin in a pill because that's really yeah. to your uh-huh. body. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like we have to impart that to teens, but I think that message needs to be imparted to a lot of adults, too. I don't think people are thinking this is heroin in a pill. I I think you're right. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. What about Mm. for those of us who may have loved ones who are struggling with opioid addiction? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, I get asked a lot, you know, how do you talk to somebody about it or whatnot? And everything is so very dependent on what you're seeing and what you're doing. So, you know, for some people, if, if the issue has never come up and maybe they got a prescription for a problem and you think they're abusing it and they, they're starting to, they fall asleep at dinner or they, you know, do things that make it seem like they're taking too much of that. Um, you know, if you're in a position to monitor it a little bit, that could be helpful. But one kind of non-threatening way to, to start the conversation is to just say something like, you know, I noticed that you're having difficulty doing things that used to come easy to you. Is there something going on? You know, I noticed that you're having trouble getting up in the morning or that you um, seem kind of lethargic or you're not, um, you seem kind of secretive is is there something going on you know and so that's a way to start a conversation with somebody that either you don't know that well maybe somebody in work you know just this this idea of you know i notice you're having struggling with things that you used to do easily you know what's going on and and there's a whole nother kind of way to approach it if it's your your spouse or your child your adult child or whatnot, who you know had a problem and starts having the behaviors again or or goes back, um, you know, to being more secretive or, you know, uh, some behavior that make you wonder about what's going on, you know. And so what I would say always is that I get asked all the time, like, well, what if I ask them if they're using drugs again and they're not? They'll be really mad at me, you know. Mm. What if you don't ask them and they are? You know, I mean, you can never, I mean, I have asked colleagues, I've asked people in recovery that I've known forever that, that I just, I have to ask them if I see something because yeah. if I don't and they are, I've missed that opportunity to be helpful to them. Absolutely. Um, you know, and somebody who isn't using, you know, if you ask somebody who isn't using, you know, I noticed your behavior is a little bit like when you were using the drugs have are you struggling with that again? Somebody who's who's not using will probably say, you know, no, I've had trouble sleeping. I'm really tired, whatever it is. Somebody who is using will, will probably start screaming at you. No, I'm not using drugs. Why would you think I'm using drugs? You know, right. because they're right. that That's defensive, right. yeah. you know, so it's, um, you know, what I always say is always err on the side of asking, um, 
As opposed to not asking because you never know when you're going to save a life, right? That's right. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the the suicide thing. It's like people think like, well, I don't want to ask because I don't want to, you know, it's like ask. It's never bad to ask. (laughs) Absolutely right. And what about for, you know, maybe we have some listeners who are struggling, um, whether they've, you know, been taking opioids or, um, you know, muscle relaxants or any other prescription drug. I know Ativan and Xanax, you know, those can be very addictive. If someone finds themselves in that situation, where should they reach out for help? Yeah, I mean, I think if somebody finds that they've started using uh, opioids, whether it's a prescription or whether it's at a party, it, it really doesn't matter. And they find themselves caught up in wanting and needing more. What I would say is the faster you make a change, the better. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you know, do not wait until it gets so bad that you are... Um, you know, your behaviors, you know, when you get into recovery, life can be absolutely fabulous in recovery, but you've got to deal with all the behaviors you had in the past. So don't let them get, you know, as soon as you, if you think you have a problem, you probably do. And one of the analogies I always make is nobody thinks, wow, man, I think I might have a problem with broccoli. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't come up, right? If you think, wow, I might have a problem with this drug, you probably do. You know, it's it's rare that somebody would imagine having a problem with the, with a drug and they they don't really have some level of a problem. So I would, you know, if you're you can go to all different places. I mean, if your family would be supportive um, and help you, I would go to family. I would go, you can go get a free um, assessment um, at, at, like at our treatment programs, we'll do a free assessment on the phone with you. Um, you can um, talk to your EAP or your human resources person at work if that's possible. You can um, just make an appointment for an assessment somewhere. You can talk, to, you can go to an Alcoholics Anonymous or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and say, gee, I'm not sure, you know, I thought I'd see, you know, uh-huh. what this is about and, and talk to people who have had the problem and are in recovery. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different avenues um, to kind of look for, you know, some people will also go to their clergy, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um One thing I would say is that if it's a prescription opioid problem and you got it from your physician, then if they didn't warn you about this, they probably don't know enough about it. And they're probably going to tell you, you you probably don't have a problem. Right. Um, You know, by the time people come into treatment, typically they've tried to quit on their own and been unsuccessful. They've tried to cut back and been unsuccessful. So one of the ways to see if you have a problem is to see... If you can um, quit on your own, and the if you are um, have a physiological dependency, a substance use disorder with an opioid, um, you're if you if you quit on your own, it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The good news is that you won't die of opioid withdrawal. You will feel like you'll you feel want like to. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always say that you'll want to die, but you will uh-huh. not. Whereas if you're also um, additionally using heroin, using I'm sorry, alcohol or benzodiazepines like. Or Valium heavily, those are withdrawal um, syndromes that you can die from. So you need to go um, to a treatment program to detox from those. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you can cut back and quit on your own, um, that's a pretty good indication that you had a problem, but you're, you're doing okay. And if you can't stay quit, then that's a time when you might want to um, get some treatment, learn some skills about how to stay off the drugs. Yeah. And I think people might be surprised to find that most insurance plans will cover treatment. 
Yeah, I mean, treatment, it's, it's very interesting. So there's a lot of different ways to go with treatment. If you have health insurance, um, it is mandated that your health insurance cover substance use disorder and mental health treatment. That is a, a federal mandate. Um, so they will have coverage. What I want to say, though, is that you need to make sure that you're going to an in-network provider. I'm sure a lot of folks have heard these stories about people who got $100,000 bills after they checked out of somewhere. Uh-huh. And it was for drug screens. And, you know, yep. if you're going to an in-network center, and we're about 90% of all of our patients are in-network. And what that means is that they will have their deductible or a copay, which could be as little as $750 for a to be in treatment for 30 or 40 days. Yeah. I mean, that's really amazing. And that also means that we have negotiated with all the insurers in the neighborhood and, and in the network for a set rate. And we actually get paid a lot less per day that way, but it's better for the patient and better yeah. overall because we do not, if you see a psychiatrist, we don't bill separately. If you get a, a drug screen because we feel we're concerned about your behavior, you know, you're not billed separately for anything else. It's, it's very transparent that uh, there aren't any other um, any other uh, service billing that you're going to be stuck with when you get home. And people do get home and get stuck with twenty, thirty, fifty, dollars $150,000 bills. Yeah. By going out and network. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, anything else people should know about the opioid crisis? Well, I mean, I think there's some things about it that are getting better. There's a little bit more education for physicians. There's um, an increased use and funding for naloxone, the the overdose medication. Um, One thing I want to say is that uh, naloxone or Narcan is the most common one. Sorry about that. Is... um, (laughs) Is a uh, is a treatment for an overdose. It's not treatment for the addiction. Um, so even if somebody gives you Narcan and you are revived, you can't just kind of get up and go about your day. You really need to get that checked out. Um, some people can overdose. And they get Narcan, which knocks the opioids off the opioid receptors. And then the Narcan will um, kind of fade away before the opioid gets out of the system. So they can actually overdose a second time. So one is that if you're in a situation where Narcan is used, make sure the person gets treatment. Um, you know, the it's it's... What's really important today is to know that any use can be a lethal use. There's um, a tremendous amount of um, carfentanil and fentanyl coming into the country, mostly from China. And there are people that go out and use heroin for the first time and will overdose and die because it is laced with a fentanyl and carfentanil. And we're having a problem with that being laced into cocaine as well. Um, So it's really a very dangerous time, frankly, to be... um, to be playing around with any kind of uh, drugs, whether it's cocaine, amphetamines, or heroin. We've seen uh, fentanyl laced in all of them. So just be very careful out there. And if you think you have a problem, just go see somebody, talk to them about it, um, and just evaluate it and see, see, you know, what, what it needs, what can you do, what can be helped so that you will not go on to continue to have this problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Denny, thank you so much. Where can people find you online? Um, Chris, so I'm at Denny Carice um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. It's it's, it's Denny.Carice um, for both of those. I'm in LinkedIn. Um, and then Recovery Centers of America has a Facebook and, and all those pages as well. And if anybody has any questions, we have a call center that's open 24 hours a day. They can just call 1-800-RECOVER. Fantastic. And we will put all those links up on SelfiePodcast.com as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Kristen.
Thanks for joining us. Continue the self-care conversation with us over at Instagram at at Selfie Podcast. And make sure to join our uber supportive community that we love on Facebook by searching for Selfie Podcast Community. You can also visit our website to check out the resources we've talked about in each episode at selfiepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to Selfie on iTunes so that you can catch up with us next week. Special thanks to Shepherd Audio for providing our music. Take care. Take care.